morning. If you got your Bible, you can turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and there should be a handout on the screen for you to, to use if you'd like. But let me, uh, let me pray real quick and, and start off our time, and then we'll get into Ecclesiastes. God, we are thankful for your kindness and goodness that you are the provider, the one who cares for us. Thankful that you answer our prayers, and we're thankful for your word this morning, and we pray that as we study, uh, that we would just be captivated by your greatness and your worth, and that all the things of the world would would grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. So just pray that you would bless our time in the word this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, in the sixth stage of the Pilgrim's Progress... The travelers come upon a town and a fair in the town called Vanity Fair. Bunyan writes it this way, I saw in my dream they presently saw a town before them, and the name of that town is Vanity. And at the town there is a fair kept called Vanity Fair, a fair wherein should be sold all sorts of vanity and that it should last all the year long. Therefore, at this fair are all such merchandise sold as houses, lands, trades, places, honors, preferments, titles, countries, kingdoms, lusts, pleasures, and delights of all sorts as harlots, wives, husbands, children, masters, servants, lives, blood, bodies, souls, silver, gold, pearls, precious stones, and whatnot. And moreover, at this fair there is at all times to be seen jugglings, cheats, games, plays, fools, apes, knaves, and rogues, and that of every kind. Here are to be seen too, and that for nothing, thefts, murders, adulteries, false swearers, and that of a blood-red color. So we come to Ecclesiastes chapter 2 today. We're going to find that Solomon walks fully and thoroughly through Vanity Fair. Solomon pursues in his life every possible pleasure and worldly pursuit that he can find for the sake of finding meaning in his life. The reality is that Solomon will come to the conclusion that he already knew, and that is that nothing this world has to offer will ever give true meaning to life. So our theme for this morning, nothing this world has to offer will ever give true meaning to life. You remember back in chapter 1 that we covered last week, Solomon began with this question in chapter 1 verse 3, what advantage or, or what profit does man have in all his toil which he does under the sun? What is the point of the toil of this life? Why are we here and what is the goal? And so we worked through chapter 1 and I'll pull up the outline from last week so you can see. We talked about the question of the meaning of life. And then in the second half of chapter 1, we noticed that, that Solomon began a quest and he used a certain method for doing that. One, he used his own wisdom, the, the amount, incredible amount of wisdom that God had given him. He put that to work trying to discover what life had to offer and what life was really about. And then he realized as he was going through this process at some point that maybe the answer isn't out in the world, but it's actually in his own mind. And so 
he says, what if I just need to understand wisdom itself? And so he goes down that road as well. When we come to chapter 2, you'll notice that we're in the second half of this quest, and that is, what are the results? What, what happened? What did Solomon find as he went after all these things? And so we're going to take that little section, and we're going to make that our outline for today. And so, uh, the first thing that we'll see, of course, is the vanity of pleasure. The vanity of pleasure. Let's go ahead and read chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And then we'll get into our study. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure, so enjoy yourself. And behold, it too was futility. I said of laughter, it is madness, and of pleasure, what does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had home-born slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. So this first section, Solomon goes down the path of pursuing pleasure, and he finds it to be vanity. Now, we find in the first couple of verses his hypothesis. That is, what does he think he's going to do, and what does he think is going to happen? And so verse 1, he says, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure, so enjoy yourself. He said, I I said in my heart, I will put you to the test with pleasure. Pleasure. Uh, the, the word is just a, a simple word. It means joy or gladness, or, or we often use the word happiness. It's just what feels good. And we'll notice as we walk through that, that most of these things are not innately bad. Many of the things that he pursues are okay and, and can even be good and honoring if we use them correctly. But the question is, he is testing himself with pleasure. He is putting pleasure to the test all the way to the limits of it. But you'll notice it says, so enjoy yourself. Literally, it says, so go and see the good. The idea is, what is there that's good in these things? So the point is not that Solomon is just trying to have as much good feeling as he can, but he's trying to find out, is pursuing pleasure and feeling good, is that the point? Is there something innately good about that? Is that what we're after? But Matthew Henry warns, here he takes a great step downward from the noble pleasures of the intellect to the brutal ones of sense. 
If he resolved to make a thorough trial, he must knock at this door, because here a great part of mankind imagine they have found that which he is in quest of. You see, hear what he said? He said, Solomon has to go down this road of pleasure if he's really going to say that he's investigated the meaning of life. You know why? Because most of the world thinks that the meaning of life is in self-pleasure. And therefore, if he's going to do a comprehensive study, a thorough investigation like he said he was going to do, he has to go down this road to say what it is. Now, should he have gone down this road? And the answer is no, of course not. He should have trusted that God had given him exactly what he needed, but rather... In his own sense of doing a well, a, a good investigation, he walks down this road, and he even knows going in, verse 1, behold, it too was futility. He knew the answer already. He said, I said of laughter, it is madness. Laughter is, is just this, this, this short-lived, uh, immediate pleasure feeling of happiness, right? It's that superficial gaiety, one commentator said. Uh, Proverbs 10.23 translate this word as sport. It's sport to a fool. But he says, I said of laughter, it is madness. That is, it's not sensible. (laughs) Why is laughter madness? Well, we know this actually in our lives. You know why people love stand-up comedy and funny movies and, and TV shows? It's because it's an escape from reality. It's you taking time to not think about your real life and to enjoy something different that actually isn't true. Laughter at its base is madness. (laughs) Going after that short-lived happiness, it's just senseless. He said, I said of pleasure, what does it accomplish? Again, knowing, going into this, this pursuit of pleasure, he knew what he was going to find. What is pleasure really going to accomplish? And yet he goes anyway. We find next the experiments that he begins to, to conduct. And so the first one he goes after is, in verse 3, we find him pursuing controlling substances. In verse 3, he says, I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely. I explored. I, I spied out what would happen if this occurred. I stimulated. I, I refreshed. I, I made my body feel good with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely. While, while my heart was still in control is the idea. So, he's careful to say, I didn't just fall headlong into every kind of debauchery. I really was trying to figure out what was going on. And so, I started with wine, and I just tried to find out how far can we go down the road of letting substances control the way we feel before we hit a point where our heart is no longer in control. You see that? But, notice... And just so you know, there's disagreement on this, this text on how far did Solomon go and how far and how much was his mind in control. Some people want to say, oh, you know, he said he wanted to do that, but he just went all the way in. And actually, a lot of commentators try to say, oh, no, he never went too far. He never sinned at all in this. He was just trying to find out. And I just think you can't say that. The reason being is because he says in verse 3, I wanted to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is. You see what he said? I went all the way in. (laughs) I went far enough to find out where does the good stop and where does folly begin. And just so you know, you know how you find that line? You cross it. Until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their 
lives. It says in verse 3, the few years of their lives, literally, the sons of men have numbered days. Just so you know, and I hope you realize, your days in this life are numbered. It might be a larger number than you think or a smaller one, but there is a number in the mind of God. Your days are numbered. And what Solomon says is that there is the finest of lines between stimulation, enjoyment, and pleasure, and taking hold of folly. So can I just beg you all to be enormously careful when it comes to controlling substances? Whether that is alcohol, like he, uh, wine that, that Solomon went after, whether that is any kind of other drug or medication prescribed or not, please be careful. Because it begins with stimulation and it ends with folly. That's what it is. The second thing that he goes after is great accomplishments. Great accomplishments. He says in verse 4, I, I made my works great. I enlarged my works. These are, these are his accomplishments, his activities that he has done. I made them great. Matthew Henry says, oh, his mistake. He inquired after the good that could be done in verse 3, but instead he applied himself to great works. He should have gone after good works, and instead he tried to make his works great. He says, I built houses for myself. Second Chronicles 2.1, Solomon decided to build a house for the name of the Lord and a royal palace for himself. You remember 1 Kings 7.1 tells us it took 13 years for Solomon to build his house, and later it tells us seven years for the house of the Lord. He spent 20 years doing this, enlarging his works, his accomplishments. The word he says, I built, that word is used dozens of times in 1 Kings 3 to 11. If we want to say what is Solomon's legacy in this world temporally, it was the things that he built. Also notice that he says, I enlarged my works and I built houses for myself. <laughs> this little personal pronoun, the looking at I, me, my, right, that we use, in these 11 verses, verses 1 to 11, that pronoun, I, me, my, myself, is used 27 times. Solomon, in his pursuit of pleasure, did it right. He cared about him. He said, I'm going to go down this road. I'm going to go all the way down. I'm going to find out if this is true. And just so you know, he, he didn't let up in the middle of his experiment. It was about him. I built for myself these things. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. Gardens could be, be something that you think of as a garden. It's probably more like an orchard. So maybe think bigger like a botanical garden where there's lots of, of variation of different kinds of plants. And he says, I, I built parks for myself. A park is technically a, a privately maintained forest. So don't think of your city park that has the little walking trail and the playground. Think of what we would call a state park or a national park, right? Those areas that are, that are professionally maintained, if you will, but they are just wild uh, areas of forests and trees. Uh, we see this in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 8. It says, the king's forest is the idea. He says, I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. And then in verse 5, he says, I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. 
literally trees of every kind of fruit, everything that he could find. And of course, we remember about Solomon that he was importing things from all over the world, importing apes and peacocks and different things. Of course, I assume he would have brought different kinds of fruit and different kinds of seeds, and, and he went after this. But there's something more going on in these verses than it's just him enjoying a garden. Because notice the word parks in verse 5, made gardens and parks for myself. Well, that word in Hebrew is paradise. I don't know if you can hear the English word that comes out of that, but it's paradise. You'll notice in verse 4, sorry, verse 5, he said, I made gardens and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. There are five words in there that also appear in Genesis chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, when God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, planting plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind. And again in verse, uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden. I don't know that I can prove this to you definitively, but I don't think that Solomon was trying to create a garden. I think Solomon was trying to recreate the garden. He made gardens and parks for himself and planted every kind of fruit tree. Solomon was trying to create his very own paradise. He made pools of water for himself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees, verse 6. Literally, I made pools so that the trees could drink. This is the idea that he is creating artificial forests. He is, he is taking uh, seeds and, and tree, you know, plantlings, and he is creating other new forests and new gardens around, and he is irrigating them himself. But the question is, did it satisfy We've already seen in verse 2 that it was futility. The reality is, and you and I need to know this, paradise isn't here. It's not. It's not here. We can't make it. Even Solomon couldn't make it. Paradise is when Jesus comes again and rules perfectly. It will happen, but it's not here yet. He went after controlling substances and great accomplishments. Verse 7 and 8 he talks about his vast possessions. He says, I acquired male and female slaves, and then they had home-born slaves. I possessed flocks and herds. Flocks is probably sheep or goats, smaller animals. Herds is cattle or oxen or larger animals. Larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. You remember back in 1 Kings 4, we learned that his daily, apportion, his daily portion for the palace workers was 10 oxen and 20 more, 30 oxen, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. It was just an a, a incalculable amount of food and flocks and herds here. He says, also, I collected for myself, literally, I just kind of, I, I gathered up silver and gold. You know, sometimes I have to sit on the ground with Alice and help her pick up her toys, right? And we just kind of get it all in one area, and then you dump it into a bucket or something. Solomon says, that's what I did with silver and gold. I, I just kind of gathered up all of my silver and gold that I just had laying around. 
and the treasures of kings and provinces. We know, of course, that, that Solomon was the greatest of all the kings on the earth at the time, and so all the other provinces and kingdoms would come, and they would bring their best things to Solomon and give to him so that they could receive his wisdom or some other favor. And so he said, I, I gathered up all my silver and gold, oh, and all, and all the treasure of every other country, because now I have that. And I held on to it. He last goes after carnal delights. In verse 8, he says, I provided for myself male singers and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. The, the pleasures of men, or, or literally the delight of men, concubine after concubine. He says, I, I didn't hold back on anything I went down whatever road I found. There were times where I wanted to go after substances, times I wanted to be the best at something. There were times where I wanted to just have things and times where I wanted to experience things. But I did all of it. And so in verse 9, he, he shows how far did he really go, the parameters. How far did he go before he stopped? He said, I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. First Chronicles 29:25 tells us that's true. The Lord highly exalted Solomon in the sight of all Israel and bestowed on him royal majesty which had not been on any king before him. Solomon said, it was a success. I did it. I was the biggest, I was the best, I was the most grand there had ever been. I had whatever I wanted, but my wisdom stood with me. My wisdom stood by. What's he saying? I think he's saying what he said back in verse 3, that he was trying to be intentional and careful with what he was in, investigating. He wasn't just falling into, uh, you know, just, just uh, uncontrolled sin and foolishness and debauchery. But, <laughs> Michael Eaton writes, his wisdom remained with him, but that there is a breadth of meaning in the word wisdom. Wisdom includes the wiles of Pharaoh, the cunning of Jonadab, or the proud self-sufficiency of the king in Assyria. There is a wisdom which opposes the Lord, yet in vain. And similarly, there is nothing godly about the preacher's claim here. It simply shows that he tried to retain his objectivity. You see, Solomon isn't interested in the wisdom of God, in the truth of the scripture that has been revealed. He is interested in using his own mind to calculate these things. Matthew Henry gives a warning. Let us, let none be emboldened to lay the reins on the neck of their appetites, presuming that they may do that and yet retain their wisdom. The point of this text is not that you can walk headlong into sinful practices, but still keep your wisdom with you. That's not the point. He says, they, that's you and me, have not such a strength of wisdom as Solomon had, and Solomon was deceived. You and I aren't Solomon. We don't have God-given wisdom to that extent. And guess what? Solomon did, and he failed. This is not an excuse for us to walk into sin and say that it's going to be okay. Rather, we ought to take Solomon as a warning. In verse 10, he says, all that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. Every, he says, literally, everything my eyes asked for, I didn't say no. You guys have children and grandchildren that they ask for lots of things, right? You go to the store, sometimes we have to have the conversation before we even get in the car. We're going to the store, you don't get anything. Yeah, well, you get stuff, we, we get for you, right? Don't ask. Everything his eyes asked for, he said yes. Can you imagine 
what kind of foolishness would happen in your life if you said yes to every whim that came across your heart? Solomon did. Eyes did not refuse them. He said, I didn't withhold my heart from any pleasure. The idea is eyes is looking out, right? Anything out here I want, I have. Also, what does my heart want? Anything on the inside I want, I go after as well. Nothing was withheld that might be entertaining or satisfying. And he says, my heart was pleased. It was pleased because of all my labor and toil. This was my reward for all my labor. He says, it was good. My, my heart was pleased while I was doing it. See that? It was pleased in the labor. And then what does he say? This was my reward for my labor. What was? Doing it. That was the only reward there was, was the actual activity of these things. Michael Eaton says, the verse ends on a darker note. The sheer activity was what gave satisfaction, but with achievement, the pleasure began to fade. The only thing good about this pursuit of pleasure was that he kind of felt good for a minute while he was doing it. And as soon as it ended, the pleasure was gone. And so he comes to his conclusion. Verse 11. Thus, I considered all my activities. I, I turned and sat down and looked at what I had done, my accomplishments, which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted. Matthew Henry says, Many speak contemptuously of this world because they're hermits and they don't even know it, or they're beggars and they have it not. But Solomon did know it. He had dived into nature's depths, and he had more of it perhaps than any man ever had. His head was filled with its notions, his belly with its hidden treasures, and he passes this judgment on it. Solomon had everything the world had to offer, and this is his judgment. Verse 11, behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. A futile, impossible task, something that is worthless and maybe even meaningless. And he says, there was no profit under the sun. What profit is there? What advantage can we have? And he said, there is none here. I've checked everywhere. One commentator said, the preacher's key terms all combine in this verse. Toil, vanity, striving after wind, and no profit under the sun, and they convey a bitter disillusionment. But this is interesting, he goes on. The morality of this project is not under consideration, for secular man is being shown the failure of his lifestyle on its own premises. You see, Solomon isn't trying to decide if the things of, of the world are righteous or not. He's not trying to decide if they're moral or not. He's just trying to decide if they make you feel good. And he comes back and says, there's no satisfaction. The argument isn't based on this is right and this is wrong and you shouldn't do this. He says, I've tried it and it doesn't even satisfy. Much less honor God, of course. Matthew Henry says, in short, the wealth and pleasure of this world, if we had ever so much of them, are not sufficient to make us happy. So the question for you and for me is, what is your pleasure? Notice, again, that many of the things that Solomon had and was even given are not bad things. These are good things. Family, food, accomplishments. 
So the question for you and for me is, what is the thing, the thing that drives us, the thing that we think will give us pleasure, and maybe that is something lofty and grand, accomplishing something big, maybe it's just a bowl of ice cream. But what is the thing in your life that, that gets you up in the morning, that, that drives you, that motivates you, that you go to for satisfaction and comfort? What is that thing? And if it's anything that this world has to offer, Solomon says it's vanity. Don't do it. Don't find your identity. Don't try to find meaning and satisfaction in anything in this life. It's not there. I checked. Solomon went after the vanity of pleasure, and it was just that. Secondly, he comes to verses 12 to 17 and writes of the vanity of wisdom. The vanity of wisdom. Verse 12, so I turn to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. For what will the man do who will come after the king except what's already been done? And I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I know that one fate befalls them both. Then I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, this too is vanity. For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool. Inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten, and how the wise man and the fool alike die. So I hated life. For the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me. Because everything is futility and striving after wind. He notes two things about wisdom that show us that it's really not the ultimate meaning of life. First, in verses 12 to 15, he reminds us that wisdom cannot keep you from certain death. Wisdom cannot keep you from certain death. Verse 12, I, I turned to consider wisdom. I, I turned and, and sat down and thought... I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. We talked about this a little bit last time, but remember, uh, when we're talking about human wisdom, there's a spectrum from wisdom to folly to foolishness. And sometimes you make better decisions and sometimes you make worse decisions. And then there's this thing called madness. And madness isn't on the spectrum because madness is illogical. It is senseless. It makes no sense. But notice that folly doesn't come from falling off on the wise side. Madness, sorry, madness doesn't come from falling off on the wise side. Madness comes from falling off on the folly side. It says madness and folly. It is foolishness. Ecclesiastes 10.13, he calls it wicked madness. When we are, uh, folly might be, we are kind of making intentional bad decisions. Folly is we're making things, uh, decisions that make no sense at all. Romans 1 calls it when God gives people over to a depraved mind. And he says, what will the man do who will come after the king except what's already been done? He says, I went after these things. I considered them. Why? Because the guy who's going to come after me doesn't need to redo the work. The man who will come after the king, what's he going to do except what's already been done? I'm going to do the investigation. I'll, I'll work it all out. I saw that wisdom excels folly. It exceeds folly. There, there is some profit over folly. 
in the same way that light excels darkness. I think you all understand this, but, but let's be clear. Even in human wisdom, there is some benefit because God is kind. With, human wisdom is better than human foolishness, okay? Ecclesiastes 7 talks about wisdom being with an inheritance is good. It's protection. Wisdom strengthens a wise man. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. Wisdom has the advantage of giving success. Even just using the, the mind and intellect that God has given you to make decisions is a good thing. He says in verse 14, the wise man's eyes are in his head. That is, he, he's kind of trying to pay attention, but the fool walks in utter darkness. The stupid one walks blindly. Now, we've, we've thought about this before because you remember back in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 18, Solomon writes, the path of the righteous is like the light of the dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day. But the way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. John writes the same thing in 1 John. The one who loves his brother abides in the light. The one who hates his brother is in the darkness. But there's a difference here. Because in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, Solomon isn't talking about someone who is truly wise in the God-honoring sense, someone that really has the truth of Scripture in their heart. He just says a wise man, generically, and the fool walks in darkness. He says, at least the people of the world that try to pay attention to life know where they're going. They walk around, they have some awareness, but the fool, the one who is just stupid and doesn't make good decisions, he's walking around in blindness and darkness. He says, and yet, a wise man and a fool, one fate befalls them both. Or, or he says, one happening will happen to them both. And what is that? Well, Ecclesiastes 3.19, the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. In one sense, we have the same problem that the animals do. Neither of us are immortal. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 2, it's the same for all. There's one fate for the righteous and for the wicked, for the good, for the clean, for the unclean, for the man who offers sacrifice, the one who doesn't. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer, so is the one who is afraid to swear. What, what is it? What's the same for all of them? An evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. They go to the dead. You see, in one sense, it does not matter how you live your life, you will die. No matter what, whether a wise man or a fool, you will die. The Holman Commentary says, Of course the wise go through life with better understanding of what lies ahead than do the fools, but neither one of them can escape death. Verse 15, Solomon says, I said in my heart, as is the fate of the fool, as is the happening that will happen to him, it will happen to me. Why then, why, if we're both going to die, why then have I been excessively wise? What's the point? Why have I tried to, to use my mind for good if we're just both going to die? <laughs> Dr. Barrick says, What could be so bad about dedicating oneself to the acquisition of wisdom? His question implies more than just futility. It implies that there's something better that he should have been occupying himself with. It is better for a person to prepare for eternity than to immerse oneself in preparing for this life alone. You see, the best lived life in this world with only a focus on this world 
is worthless. It won't guarantee that you won't come to death. His second comment about wisdom, we talked some about this last week. Wisdom cannot give you a lasting legacy. Wisdom cannot give you a lasting legacy. For there is no lasting remembrance. There is no memory of the wise man as with the stupid one, the fool. Inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten, and how will die the wise man with the fool, he says. There's no memory of the wise man as there's no memory with the fool, and they will both alike die. And so verse 17, I hated life. I considered life my enemy. For the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me. It's the opposite of the word good. It's evil. It's bad. This is not right. Because everything is futility and striving after wind. <laughs> Dr. Barrick notes that hating life is by no means true repentance. However, Solomon is a believer, not an unbeliever. The unbeliever holds no means of evaluating the difference between their lost condition and the experience of one who possesses eternal life and forgiveness. They don't understand the difference. But for the believer, fellowship with God involves joy and peace and love, and these are absent when sin breaks fellowship with God, and the difference is as stark as between darkness and light. Solomon, why can he make these judgments, these conclusions about what's going on in life? Because he does know the truth. He knows that there is nothing in this life worth having, and he says it's all vanity, it, it's all futility and striving after wind. They don't remember me being the wisest man in the world, just like they don't remember this fool next to me. The reality is remembrance is futile. So for you and me, are you relying on your own wisdom to live a life well-lived, if you will? Are you relying on your own wisdom to keep you from death, to keep you healthy? Are you relying on your own wisdom to, to leave your mark on the world or to make a difference in the world? It's vanity. Wisdom, human wisdom, cannot protect you from these things. They can't keep you from death, and it cannot make a lasting legacy. He comes to his third vanity, the vanity of work. Let's read verses 18 to 26. Thus, I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool, yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I've labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Therefore, I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to one who hasn't labored with them. This is vanity and a great evil. 22, for what does a man get in all his labor and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days, his task is painful and grievous. Even at night, his mind doesn't rest. This too is vanity. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? For to a person who is good in his sight, he's given wisdom and knowledge and joy. 
while to the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after wind. Solomon makes four points here under the vanity of work. Number one, he says, recognize that your life's work may go to a fool. You're going to work your entire life, and whatever you pass on, whether that's physical things or not, you might be passing them on to someone who is simply foolish. He said, so I hated, I hated all the fruit of my labor, everything that I had gotten for my toil, I hated it, for I must leave it, I must leave it to rest for the one who comes after me. Psalm 39, 6, surely every man walks as a phantom, they make an uproar for nothing, he amasses riches and doesn't know who will gather them. You spend your whole life working, and you don't know who's going to have your things after you die. Psalm 49, 10, he sees that even wise men die, the stupid and the senseless alike perish and leave their wealth to others. It doesn't matter if you're wise, it doesn't matter if you're stupid, someday you will die and the things that you have will go to someone else. Michael Eaton says, toil varies in meaning. Sometimes it refers to one's struggle, whole struggle with the problem of life, and sometimes to one's daily responsibilities, like here. Work must be left behind, so what is the point? Why are we working hard when we might just be turning our things over to a fool? Did Solomon turn his things over to a fool? First <laughs> Kings 12, 13, the king that is Rehoboam, answered the people harshly, for he forsook the advice of the elders which they had given them. Solomon, the greatest empire the world has seen, gave his things over to a fool. Why can work and your life's work not truly satisfy the meaning for life? Why is it vanity? Because at the end, it's going to go to a fool says, he will have control over, he will have authority over the things that I got by being wise under the sun. The Holman Commentary gives this warning. It's really an application for us. Many people devote themselves to incessant labor under the justification that they're doing it for their children. But this is no excuse for wasting one's own life. The children may simply squander all that their parents struggled to accumulate. You see, the reality is, and we'll talk more in a minute about what it means to leave an inheritance, but if your whole point is you're going to spend every minute of your life worrying and working, it's worthless because at some point all that's going to be gone because whether it's your child or your grandchild or someone along the line is going to come along who is absolutely foolish and everything you worked for is going to go away. You cannot find your life's identity in your work. Secondly, he says, you can't find your life's identity in your work. There's no lasting meaning here because your life's work will go to an undeserving party. And the idea here is, what if they're not a fool? What if I raise a child and, and, and they just actually happen to turn out okay? Well, guess what? They still didn't work for what you're going to leave to them. Verse 20, I completely despaired. He says, I turned my heart over to despair. I was done. I gave up. Over all the fruit of my labor, for which I had labored under the sun, when there's a man who has labored with wisdom and knowledge and skill, skill is the 
the idea of being successful, the ability to succeed. He says, I labored with wisdom, with knowledge, massive amounts of information, and with skill. I, I knew I had what it took to win, to succeed. Then he gives his legacy to one who hasn't labored for them. He gives the portion, the legacy, the inheritance, to the one who hasn't worked for it. And then he finishes verse 21, this is vanity and a great evil. You know what he says? The great evil, uh, one, I think it's, uh, I forget, one of the translations says awful injustice. He says, says, I'm going to work my whole life, I'm going to gather all these things together, and I'm going to leave it to someone who didn't work a day for it. That's not fair. (laughs) It's a great evil. This is injustice that I'm going to do this and leave it to someone else. It's just not fair fair. Is he right? He is right. It's not fair. You die and someone else gets your stuff for free. But is that the right perspective? Of course not. So let's think about some application here. Two sides of it. On the one hand, are you and I wasting our lives building up an inheritance of money or memories or something else when we actually should be spending our lives serving God, serving the church, studying his word, sharing the gospel, and all the things that we're called to do? Are we spending our lives and finding our identity in what we think we can leave behind? On the other hand, are we being careful and faithful to unselfishly build an inheritance for our children as a kindness to them? Proverbs 13.22 says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. You see, it is good and right that you work hard and be faithful to leave something for your children, to provide for them. And just so you know, this is not just money. This is teaching them the way of how to live life well according to the way God has designed it. This is important. Are you being faithful to do that and yet... You can't cross the line of saying, what do you do with your life? What are you about? What is the thing that drives you every day? It's my work, what I'm doing. Just so you know, people that fall into this trap are not always the white-collar CEO people. They're people who just think they have to work another minute, another day. Those people who have trapped themselves in wasting their life. And you know what? At the end of your life, no matter what happens... You will die, and your stuff will go to someone else who didn't work for it. No matter what, that's what will happen. Third, he says you need to recognize that your life's work is simply not worth the pain and stress. Your life's work is simply not worth the pain and stress. Verse 22, he says, what does a man get in all his labor in his striving with which he labors under the sun. Very similar to the question he asked in verse 3 of chapter 1, kind of the core question, what's the profit? Here he says, what is there for the man who strives in his heart in his labor under the sun? What is it? What profit is there? What is the point? He says, because all his days, his task is painful and grievous. Painful and grievous. The idea is it it hurts (laughs) Both on the inside, grievous, and the outside. It's painful. He, he is, is putting his body and mind through this toil, through this painful labor, for what? 
For what? Verse 23, he says, even at night, his mind doesn't rest. He literally says, no matter what, his heart won't lie down. I don't know if some of you are like me. Sometimes I have a really hard time. I tell Aaron, I can't turn my brain off. And so I either lay in bed, staring up the ceiling and usually bothering her, or I go sit in my chair and read or something like that. But I can't, I can't get my mind to lay down. <laughs> it's the idea. And you all know what this feels like. And he's saying, if you're doing that, if you're laying awake at night, and by the way, this is an application to me, and I was convicted, so don't email me, all right? But if you're laying awake at night and you can't rest because you're, you are wrapped up in the work of this life and in, in the normal everyday stuff, something is wrong. He says, this too is vanity. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, the love of money is what? The root of all sorts of evil. But he goes on and he says, some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith. And listen, they have pierced themselves with many griefs. Not only is the love of money wrong and sinful, it hurts. Going after that, you, you will be miserable as you go after the things of this world. Dr. Barrick says, in our own day, workaholism drives men and women so they don't get the proper amount of sleep and rest to maintain good health. Does the job make us workaholics or maybe the rapid pace of modern technology? No. It is our own self-centeredness. Like Solomon, we rob ourselves of joy and rest. So the question is, are you constantly stressed and overwhelmed, even to the point of losing sleep? Is that a sign that your desires are assigned to the wrong things? One who constantly stresses over life is because they are seeking satisfaction and meaning in the things that they are accomplishing. We can't. It's vanity. Psalm 127.2, <laughs> God says to you and to me today, it is vain for you to rise up early and to retire late and to eat the bread of painful labors. You know why? For he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. You are not changing the direction of your life by staying up stressing one more hour. God provides for us. Your life's work, it's just not worth the pain and stress. It's vanity. Number four, and just so you know, this is the first glimpse of hope we see in Ecclesiastes. This is the first turning point. Your life's work cannot truly satisfy question is why your life's work cannot truly satisfy he says in verse 24 there is nothing better for a man literally he there's nothing good there's nothing good for a man nothing good in a man maybe job 5 7 man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward job 14 1 man is short-lived and full of turmoil Genesis 3.17, God said to Adam that he is, that cursed is the ground because of you and in toil you will eat of it. There is nothing innately good in you. That's the start of it. Nothing about what we're going to say is because you did this, okay? Or I did this. There's nothing good in us but to eat and drink 
and tell himself that his labor is good or, or let his soul see that his labor is good. There's nothing good in us but to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. You say, well, that doesn't sound wise at all. That sounds like the fool in Luke 12, 19. I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Solomon doesn't sound like he's come to some amazing spiritual reality. He's just come to, well, enjoy. Uh, maybe, maybe it's not this you know, foolish self-sufficiency. Maybe he's going down the road that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, kind of this, this fatalistic, you know, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Might as well enjoy it while we're here. Is that what he's saying? It's not. Because at the end of verse 24, he says, This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 13, every man who eats and drinks sees good in his labor. It's the gift of God. Ecclesiastes 5, 18, God has given him, for this is his reward. This is the gift of God. You see, Solomon has come to say, no, 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 we're not after this because this is what meaning is about. This isn't what life is about. We're after this. We can enjoy these things. Why? Because God is good. Because he's given them to us. We need to have a couple right perspectives when we go down this road, okay? Here's one. In Ecclesiastes 7.14, he says, In the day of prosperity be happy, but in the day of adversity consider God has made one as well as the other. You see, when you have good days, enjoy them. Why? Because God made them. And when you had bad days, remember, God made them too. 1 Timothy 4.4 4, Paul says that everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. We need to be thankful for the good things that God has given in our lives. 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, godliness is actually a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. We need to be content when we don't have what we think we want. 1 Timothy 6.17, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. That's the point, right? We can't fix our hope on the uncertainty of riches but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. And look at this. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him Look at verse 26. For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. Now, why is it interesting that he says God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy? First of all, it's the first time that he said that God gives wisdom. The rest of the time, he's been talking about his own wisdom. Also, the word for joy is the same word as in verse 1 when he said, I will test you with pleasure. He said, pleasure is not found in the pleasure of this world. Pleasure is a gift of God. Joy, gladness, happiness in this life, enjoying these things only comes when we realize that who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him. Notice also he says wisdom and knowledge. This knowledge, this is the same idea that we see throughout the scripture of just knowing things in our minds. Wisdom and knowledge are found in company with skill, back in verse 21. 
Solomon said, I have my wisdom and knowledge. I know what I need to do. I have the skill. I have the ability to succeed in them. And you know what he said about that? He said it was vanity. But what happens if God gives wisdom and knowledge? What comes with it then? Is it the ability to succeed every time? No. It's the joy, the pleasure, the gladness of heart that we can actually have because these things are from God. He says, those things go to a person who is good in his sight, someone who is right with God, but to the sinner, we know we're all sinners, but to the one who is, is not right with God, the one who's missing the mark, he has given him a task, a task of gathering and collecting. It's the same. He said, remember when he was gathering and collecting all of his money and stuff? He says, unbelievers, you know what their life is? Unbelievers' job from God is to gather up things so that eventually it will be given to someone who honors God. Interesting, isn't it? They will give it to one who's good in God's sight. Job chapter 27 verse 17, he may prepare it, but the just will wear it and the innocent will divide the silver. Proverbs 28 8, he who increases his wealth by interest gathers it for him who's gracious to the poor. He said, even unbelievers in this world, as much as they're trying to have all the stuff Eventually, whether it's a generation or two or three, in God's goodness and in God's provision, those things are going to go to someone who God cares for them to have. Dr. Barrick says, Life in this world can only have significance and provide enjoyment for the believer <laughs> because the unbeliever cannot reckon with his or her sin and rebellion. Life turns out to be a bitter disappointment and its joy is empty and fleeting. See, notice that he says, who can have enjoyment without him? If you are not in Christ, recognize that no matter what you have in this world, you cannot actually enjoy it. You can't, because you don't have the right mindset. Rather, you are after vanity. End of verse 26. You are, you are gathering and collecting so that eventually it will be given over to one of God's people. Your life is vanity and striving after wind. Your life's work cannot truly satisfy if you are not right with God. So, how do we respond? Well, one, I think that we need to respond correctly in rejoicing and enjoying God's everyday gifts. The are, these things are a gift from God to eat, to drink, and for your soul to see that your labor is good. They're not good from you. They're good from God. So enjoy them as God's good gifts. But also recognize that you, if you are not one of God's people, or for the people out in the world who are not right with God, they cannot find true enjoyment in anything. They will never feel satisfied and fulfilled because their heart isn't right. They don't have a heart that can handle the joy that comes from the hand of God. They are after the things of this world. Dr. Barrett kind of concludes with this. One who knows the true and living God can never be satisfied merely with what this world offers. Solomon knows better than to pin his hope on things under the sun. He retains a true perspective of the value of earthly achievements and success. True joy cannot originate within man himself. That's the bottom line. After all of Solomon's searching and testing and consideration, under the sun there is no lasting happiness 
or pure pleasure. So where is our lasting happiness and pure pleasure? Well, in 1922, there was a poem written by a lady named Rhea F. Miller. Ten years later, in 1932, a mother wrote out the words to this poem, and she left them on the piano for her son to find, hoping that they would inspire him. As he sat down at the piano and read the words of this poem, within minutes he had composed a melody and music and he sang it at church later that day. The young man's name was George Beverly Shea. And the poem reads like this. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Let's pray. God, we're thankful for your word and its clarity. God, there is nothing in this world worth it. God, let them have all this world, but give us Jesus. We'd rather have Jesus than anything this world has to offer, and we pray that we would live like it, (laughs) that we would enjoy the good gifts that you've given us, that we would work hard and be faithful, such that we might leave even good gifts to our children, but that we would never try and find our identity and satisfaction and meaning in the things of this world. They are vanity and striving after wind. God, we are thankful that you alone truly satisfy. Thankful for your word. We pray all this in your name. Amen.